Hi, I'm Thomas Kilday. I'm Sam Bresky. And we're here to talk to you about the siege in Waco, Texas, and, uh, and its aftermath. Going in depth with Thomas and Sam. Yeah. Under suspicion of selling and owning illegal weapons, the ATF decided to attempt to arrest Koresh. They opened an investigation into him, and then 51 days ago, in, on February 28th, they attempted to arrest him. Uh, their initial raid on the compound ended with four ATF agents being killed and six Branch Davidians being killed, as well as 20 ATF uh, casualties that were wounded. Um, a lot of this was due to the fact that Koresh knew the attack was coming. A mailman in Waco had told Koresh that the ATF were planning an attack and Koresh had told an ATF agent that was embedded with the Branch Davidians um, that he knew. This ATF agent was not aware that Koresh knew that he was an informant, but then immediately told the uh, ATF, off his commanding officer, that Koresh knew that they were planning to arrest him that day. Yet, the ATF still attacked and still attempted to arrest him. Crush prepared for the attack by sending all women and children into a bomb shelter under the uh, main building in the compound and armed all of the men in the compound and prepared them to fight and they were planning on, they planned on fighting to the death to protect Mount Carmel. The ATF ran into a gun battle with an entrenched enemy and were repelled extremely quickly. The ATF then uh, attempted a, created a command center around the compound and began to start negotiations in what they believed to be a hostage situation. The FBI also was brought in as this was now a federal case as federal agents had been killed. So before we get into the story, I must give you a little information about the Branch Davidians. So the Branch Davidians were an offshoot group of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church Group, created in 1929 and went through multiple stages. The Branch Davidians were created by Benjamin Rodin in 1959. Rodin moved his cult out to Mount Carmel in 1962, which is outside of Waco, Texas. So the Branch Davidians had a very literal interpretation of the Bible and basically followed it letter by letter. So they believe that God would always send a Messiah, especially leading up to its last days. The last days the Davidians believed were basically the apocalypse, and they thought the apocalypse were coming. They also prepared for like Jesus to, re- to like, come again, and that their leader was basically the prophet speaking Jesus' word. So, in the mid-1980s, a man named Vernon Howell, a.k.a. David Kresh, and Benjamin Rodin started to experience some friction, and they basically challenged each other to a resurrection contest. So Benjamin Rodin killed a man with an axe because his views of the Messiah were a little bit different, and Rodin went to jail. In the result, 
David Koresh basically won over the church group and was the only leader and was basically on nobody opposed him. So David Koresh was a very out there kind of person and he was he attracted the well the authorities uh, attention when there were reports of him taking on many brides, especially some as young as 11 and that and uh, also compound and which got the ATF involved. Moving on, we cover the siege section of the podcast. So the siege will cover day two all the way up to day 50. To begin, so David Koresh, overall, he made many demands and he just tried to prolong the siege and hold off the FBI and the ATF. So one thing he did was he demanded like his services to be broadcasted on the radio. And one thing he would do is once the his broadcast his service would get to the end, he would add on to it and like try and rewrite his Bible basically and add, like pro make it longer just so we could have more time on the air just so we could prolong the FBI and keep him away. Also, he demanded a video camera and he they sent one in and from this he recorded many uh people like as in an interview style. And it kind of showed that people wanted to be there and that nobody wanted to, nobody was there, held there against their will. And this was done probably, we can only speculate, but it was probably done just to like the, to like show the FBI that everybody there is happy and you know, there's not, everything's on the, okay. Uh, correct. This is because the FBI was operating under the assumption that he was holding all the people within the Mount Carmel complex hostage when in fact Koresh was trying to show them that he was not. Yeah, everybody there wanted to be there. Uh, and, like, if you did want to leave, all you had to do was talk to him, and then, like, he'd basically let you leave. It wasn't like Jonestown where if you wanted to leave, you were going to be killed. Um, so the FBI and G, uh, David Crush eventually agreed that he would release children from the compound as long as they were not his own children. Uh, so many kids were released, and uh, that was a big stepping stone for the, in the for the FBI, where they could get some ground in the uh, in the siege, and they could minimize uh, some of the risk by, like, for example, going in, they could like reduce the risk of collateral damage or reduce collateral damage, in fact, because nobody wants dead kids. Uh, so the FBI was able to bug the compound by uh, David Koresh. He had like an infatuation with milk, and he like he always liked to buy milk. So he wanted he requested milk and the FBI bugged the milk cartons and uh it kind of the bugs were very helpful for the FBI. So it kind of like answered a lot of questions like who set the fire at Mount Carmel which we will get into later and uh brought found, found evidence of like found evidence for the FBI to use in court if that day would come. Um and the FBI tried sieging them out through many ways like getting crash to come out by like sleep depriving them so like what they would do is at night they would just blare lights into the windows and play very loud music uh what was one of the songs called tibetan chants yeah they used tibetan uh, mountain chants yeah which like kind of like psych play a psychological toll and like you can't sleep with like blaring speakers and loud music so it kind of like would make them like you know sleep deprived and delirious which might not be good like for like a raid but it would be good like uh, for luring them out. Next, we'll get into the final days. 
So the final day on day fifty one of the assault, the uh, the hostage rescue team finally won out over the, the hostage negotiators. The ATF and FBI Joint Task Force decided to mount an assault, a second uh, assault on the compound. They started the assault by using armored personnel carriers and tanks to break down the walls of Mount Carmel and start pumping CS gas or tear gas into the compound. By the way, tear gas is not flammable. That will come that will become an important note for later. Many of the women and children in the compound were in the bunker under the main building. Um, and one of, one of the big issues with the assault was that a fire was started and the entire compound began to burn. The fire was set in three different locations on the compound and they all started at the same time. Uh, after many... Uh, after the uh, investigation, many investigations showed that um, they were accelerated fires, meaning they were started with gasoline and were purposely set. One of the answers that were raised after in the investigation was actually, how did the fire start? The branch civilians claimed that this, they were using military-grade CS gas, which means the grenade canisters were pyrotechnics, and that would release the CS gas. So they claimed that the pyrotechnics actually, like, made the house catch on fire when in fact the bugs in the milk cartons confirmed that the branch divisions actually poured gas in the compound in three separate locations and then they lit it up which is uh very useful for the FBI yeah so the uh so there became this very large debate like Sam said about how the branch divisions believed the FBI's use of military grades uh, weapons against civilians started the fire, whereas the FBI has tapes and evidence that show that the fire was set on the orders of David Koresh. Um, we can only speculate, but some people believe that the the fire was set um, by Koresh to try and preserve some kind of some semblance of control over the situation, or to give him a distraction to. Uh, remove him to make his escape. Um, but the the use of the tanks knocking down walls and the assault led to many unforeseen consequences and uh, one of which was that one wall, a wall was collapsed by one of the armored personnel carriers and blocked in an escape route in the bunker, locking, or blocking many people, many civilians and women and children in the bunker. Um, so then the aftermath was a massive PR disaster for the ATF and the FBI and a huge issue uh, that... mm, So, basically the aftermath of Waco. In general, the the fire and the amount of people that died in the fire was a PR disaster for the FBI and ATF and went down in, like, 
became basically mainstream media in years to come in music and pop culture. Uh, so on, during the fire, 26 kids died alone in that fire, in the bunker mainly. Uh, overall, in the first four ATF uh, agents were killed. Um, Koresh did not survive the siege, and he was shot and killed by his right-hand man, and then his right-hand man turned the gun on himself and killed himself with the same gun in, uh, in the bunker. So, nine people survived the fire in total, and uh, 11 people were arrested that came, out of the, that came out of Waco. So, about 76 people died in the fire in total. So, here's some perspective that only nine people made it out, which is kind of immense numbers. Um, and let's give it away to Thomas Kilday with the takeaways of Waco. So the biggest, the biggest takeaway is that there were issues on both sides. The, uh, Koresh and Koresh was a, was not a really great guy. He had child brides and was kind of weird, but, um, but then the FBI also, the FBI and the ATF were very, very aggressive in their stances and um, did use weapon grades, weapons on civilians. And, um, and they did kill 76 civilians, although there were uh, investigations that would go on to say that the... Um, the Branch Davidians killed in the bunker did have enough time to get out of the bunker, although arguments could be made that they thought they were going to be shot by the FBI. It's, there are a lot of connections in pop culture, and Waco went on, has gone on to become a very large phenomenon. Phenomenon, yeah, perfect word for it. It's a large phenomenon. There was, this was happening at the same time as Ruby Ridge, another um, ATF and FBI joint siege of uh, maybe not so great people in Idaho. in Idaho, in the woods of Idaho, where the ATF used the ATF and the FBI used a lot of force and were very aggressive and ended up killing two civilians. Um, but Waco went on to have connections with it, David Koresh and the events at Waco inspired some really messed up people. Um, Timothy McVeigh, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing bomber, he bombed the, uh, the that federal building in Oklahoma City in the name of David Koresh and because of the events that transpired at Ruby Ridge and Waco. Um, the Columbine shooters both looked up, looked up to both David Koresh and Timothy McVeigh, uh, as they saw themselves and these men as members of a counterculture. Um, the, Waco also taught the FBI and the ATF, Waco and Ruby Ridge taught the FBI and the ATF some different strategies because obviously the siege and then front force and then attack and just burn everything to the ground Russian hostage rescue 
did not work. So the uh, so David Koresh's followers they find they realized were more of a defensive cult as opposed to an aggressive cult, where they wanted they would defend their little spot on Earth until they died, like until death. They thought that if they died protecting their spot, they would be martyrs for their cause and would go to heaven. And they didn't try and like project their beliefs on other people. They just kind of sat down, made camp, and anybody who came in there was either with us or against us. They're not like an aggressive cult, like as you see today, ISIS, who are trying to kill everybody that does not, who does not uh, subscribe to them. the Muslim theory or go with them, where, where they actively seek out Westerners too. They kind of sit down in their camp and it's like, you're either with us or against us, but if you seek us out, we will protect ourselves or you will become one of us. Yeah, and so the FBI kind of realized that with many of these defensive cults, they're taught that the government will come and we'll try and stop them from doing what they want to do and we'll attack them. And so they learned, the FBI has learned now has since changed their strategy to not always go with just full force attack. They will now use stealth raids, ones that won't be found out by the followers like Koresh found out in at the beginning of the siege. And they they try and use stealth raids and um, now the FBI teams, instead of just being made up of a SWAT team, the hostage rescue teams are now a task force with specialists and doctors and negotiators. And instead of, as in this case, the negotiators were kind of blown off by the hostage rescue team, the, um, the, no the negotiators are now uh, have an elevated status and all of the, sol all the, of the uh, officers are now also trained with hostage rescue techniques and negotiating skills. So in conclusion, the big overarching theme is that both sides were in the wrong, but that hopefully Waco is something that never ever happens again. Nothing ever like it happens again, and we can move on and learn from this really spot in American, this dark spot in American history. Personally, I think it's not, like, it's, we can't really fault, like, some of the actions made at Waco because they only had, like, a couple minutes or, or seconds even to make that decision, and I don't think it's fair that, you know, we criticize them for the rest of time based on those couple seconds they had, even though it might have been a good, missed, a, a good or a bad call, they still made the call instead of sitting by, and yes, there were mistakes made on both sides, it's, it's what happened, happened, and what's done is done. And now we can only learn from this, as Thomas said, and move on. And clearly the FBI has moved on and reform, find their uh, hostage rescue teams and kind of put on it where they kind of deal everything more gently now instead of just going in with the sledgehammer to, like, instead of just going in with the sledgehammer and just uh, wreaking havoc on a place. Right, Thomas? Yeah. Yeah, they, we've now moved away from the Russian hostage rescue. That's so, all for now. Yeah, so thank you um, for listening to us talk about Waco. Uh, and goodbye. Bye-bye. So,